As we come now to hear from God's word, you can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like, to Mark in chapter 12. This morning we're again in Mark chapter 12. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, help us to really see you here and to be captivated by you, to marvel at your goodness wisdom, and grace, so that we might be changed by you. Would you help us to see you in your word, by your spirit? Would you guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark in chapter 12. We'll start in verse 13. And they sent to him, the him there is Jesus, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. So now, as we go through this, there was something about this text as I read it, something about Jesus here that was particularly striking to me this time. You know that uh, just a few weeks ago, we were in Colorado, and we go every year to family camp in Colorado, and I I love it. I look forward to it every year. I mean, I love Missouri. I love Kansas, where we're from. But I also love the mountains. I love the rest that Colorado is. I love the nice chilly air like we've had this morning. And, and I get to read lots of books, which I know is very nerdy. But, you know, that's one of my things. And so there's a chance to just kind of pause and, and really enjoy everything. But there's a part of that Colorado vacation that I always dread. The drive. Right? I mean, some people love to travel. I am not one of those people. It's a, it's a 14-hour drive in total to get there and then the same 14 to get uh, back. And, it, and I know it's not that big of a deal, but just the prospect of the drive beforehand changes me. I find that my fuse is shorter. I, I'm more anxious, I think, about driving. I get upset quicker. I'm, I'm preoccupied. I the fruit of the Spirit just sort of draining out of me. I'm, I'm, I'm less loving, less joyful, less peace-filled, less patient, less kind. And it's easy to blame that experience on the circumstance. You know, stress did it, so that's not the real me. But if I'm honest, I pause and go, yeah, I'm like this sometimes. I'm not as full of the Spirit as I want to be. I'm impatient. I'm unkind. And Lord, 
help me, change me, shape me, guide me. I need you for this. And when I read through this, I was struck by how different Jesus is in relating to his difficulties. I mean, we've just read in chapter 10, not that long ago, that Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem to die. He knows it. In fact, that's going to happen in about three days from this period. Also, he knows that he's going to die at the hand of the religious leaders, which are the very people who are standing in front of him right now, pushing on him, challenging him, kind of poking him, trying to get under his skin. And just imagine for a moment how you would deal with that situation. Because I don't think I would deal with it very well. You know, we know that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human, which means Jesus was tempted. I don't know what that looked like for him, but like, did he want to just kick him in the shins and run? You know, whatever version of it looked like, or just to like spout really nasty things at them. But even if he was tempted, he did not do that. Jesus here is still firm, but wise, full of grace and the fruit of the Spirit. He is sinless. That's the reason, by the way, why he's able to be a perfect sacrifice for us in our place, so that we can look to him for hope, we can look to Jesus for help, and we can look to Jesus to save us. But, in all of this, I wonder, so these religious leaders are pushing and pushing and pushing on Jesus, and I wonder why, why would he even engage with them? Why even answer their question? Because he can be sinless and just walk away. Right? Isn't that what your mama taught you? You don't have anything nice to say. Am I butchering this? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say nothing at all, you know? You know, they're they're trying to get at him and trying to make him uh, be ashamed in front of everybody. And why not just be like, roll your eyes and kind of walk on? And I think the answer to that is that Jesus responds to these religious leaders who are pushing him not just for them, it's for those who are listening to this situation. For those around at that time, and then for us, as we eavesdrop on what's going on. So we should look at this. We know last uh, time we were together, uh, Jesus was being challenged by the authority, uh, by the religious authorities about his own authority, basically saying, Jesus, how do you have the right to do or say what you're doing? So Jesus tells this story, in wh- a parable, in which he is the beloved son of the owner. Jesus is the son of God there in that story, one who is one with the father, and that's true. That's the thing that will eventually get him killed to say that he is one with God. So then, at the end of that, in verse 12, which is right before what we we read, the religious authorities then left. They they pushed on Jesus, he responded, and and then they split, and, and they regroup, which is what's happening at the beginning of our text. So then, the, uh, then they sent some Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So what has happened is they're really trying to get at Jesus because Jesus is threatening to them. And so it didn't work the first time. So, so they huddle up. I mean, I'm kind of filling in the blanks here, but they, they huddle up and they go, all right, let's bring our best people, the smartest people, and we're really going to figure out something that's really going to get them. 
So they, I'm sure they picked particular folks. They've got their strategy, and they, they, they set it all up. And so it says there, they sent them to trap him in his talk. That word there in the Greek means trap like a hunter or a fisher would. You know how you set that big cage down in the ocean or in the river or wherever, and the fish go in, and then they can't get out? So basically, they're putting the cheese on the mouse trap. At least that's the, that's the hope. And when they first show up to Jesus, this group, they've, really, they've got their plot all figured out. And the way they start there is, is very greasy. You see that in verse 14? Well, they start off with all this flattery. Oh, teacher, we know that you're true, and you don't care about what people say. You, you know, you really say what you mean, and, and even you teach what's true. All of those things are right, by the way, but the way that they say that is full of flattery. It's just slimy. I had an old pastor who used to say, you know, gossip is the stuff that you say to people's back but not to their face. And that flattery is the reverse. It's the stuff that you say to their face but not behind their back. And that's what's happening here. They're trying to butter Jesus up. And Jesus, it says, knows that they're being hypocritical in this, but that doesn't stop them from trying to lay their trap. So they've got the trap. Here's their big plan. Here's how we're really going to get Jesus. We're going to ask him about taxes. Because what better way to get in trouble by, than by asking people about religion and politics, right? Those are the, the two most sensitive places. So before we talk about how they talk about taxes, let me freeze us here and give us a little bit of context. Here's what's going on. At this time, the Jews are not in political power. This is not Israel in which their system, the king was a Jewish person under the direct law of God. The people in political power at this time are the Romans, the head of which is Caesar. And you remember at Jesus' birth, if you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas or if you read Luke's gospel, that a decree went, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. We know this guy because Caesar Augustus is the person that we named the month of August after. So we're in August. This is named after Caesar Augustus. That was at the birth of Jesus. Now, many years later, um, his stepson, Tiberius, is the one who's in power. Luke, Luke mentions it in Luke chapter 3. And so when Jesus asked for this coin, the denarius, just like we have our paper money that has presidents' faces on them, their money had the face of the Caesar printed. So Jesus asked for this uh, denarius, and it would have been the face of Tiberius on it. And the inscription, you can still, some of these coins still exist, by the way. And you can see his face. The inscription said this in Latin, Tiberius Caesar Divis Augusti Filius Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. That word divine is a problem. It means the god Augustus. So he's calling himself the son of a god. Now, for Caesar to elevate himself to the level of God is a problem. For Jews and for us, that's blasphemy. 
So no Jew really likes this, but especially there were a group of Jews called the Zealots that would have had a particular problem with this. And they were a militant group of Jews that were against Rome because they refused to acknowledge any king but God alone. So they wouldn't uh, follow after any of the government things and they wouldn't pay any taxes. They were fanatics and they were very often violent people and they thought their terrorism was justified. So a modern example of this might be uh, people who blow up abortion clinics in the name of Jesus. Not good, by the way. Please don't do that. Not that you were planning it anyway. Oh, some people go, oh man, I, I'll have to set that aside. Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, there were num a number of zealots in the Bible. Barabbas was probably a zealot. It's the reason why we think he was put in prison. So now, let's zoom back into what's going on here. Here's the trap that they've set. They've said, Jesus, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? hear them kind of breathe on their fingernails and kind of brush it against their shoulder. Okay, we've really got him. Because if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, he's acknowledging the blasphemy of Caesar who called himself the son of God, and that's going to get him in trouble with the Jews. But if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, then that puts him in line with the zealots and is going to get him in big trouble with Rome, maybe even put him in prison. And then Jesus will be completely out of the way. Ha ha! We got it. So then what does Jesus do? I love how this plays out in the text. Jesus, he knows their hypocrisy. This is verse 15. Why put me to the test? He knows a test is even happening. And he doesn't respond right away. He says, bring me a coin so I can look at it. And it's not that he's trying to figure out what to say. I, you know, I don't know why this big pause, I imagine someone's like sifting through their pockets. Who's got a quarter, you know? And finally someone like pulls out this denarius and they give it to Jesus. And I bet he, he just kind of looked at it for a moment. I don't know this, but it seems that way. And then he says, I mean, I, I, this pause, I would imagine, you, you know, what might we expect Jesus to say in response? Do we pay taxes or no? I think I would expect him to condemn the Caesar who is calling himself the son of God on that coin. But then Jesus says in verse 17, the punchline here, the answer is this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Gasp. And to God the things that are God's. Basically, this is a clever way of Jesus to affirm the authority of God and the authority of government under God. Uh, Paul writes some about this in a clearer way in Romans chapter 13. This principle of how we're to relate to government, and specifically he even talks about taxes here. Romans 13, verse 1, I'll read a number of verses here. Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, 
and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Here's his last words. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. It's very clear about how we're to relate to government. And as soon as I say I'll read all of this, I want to be clear also that politics and religion are very different. You might not get that impression from going into a Christian's house because sometimes anyone, but sometimes uh, Christians have in their home much more discussions about politics than we do about God. Our TVs are talking about politics but not about God. Our Bibles get dusty but our newspapers, we peruse all of what's happening in the government for us and in the world. And we struggle to listen to a 30-minute sermon, but we'll listen to an hour of political commentary on the TV every night. What is happening to us? In essence, Paul says here in Romans 13 that these government authorities are from God. And by that, he's not saying that all governing authorities and all the decisions they make are by themselves good. That's no surprise to us. We're all humans. No human is good. And it's very clear that politicians make mistakes like anyone else. And some governing authorities are not only not good, but some are very, very bad. They're oppressive and selfish. But by saying they're from God, Paul is saying that Governing authorities are appointed by God. The particular authorities are put there by God, even with all of their flaws. And so, out of that, we, under their authority, are to be subject to them. Meaning, we're to pay what, we're, what, what is owed, including taxes. Peter gets at a very similar idea. Last piece, I'll talk about this before we move on. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, Peter says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good... You should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter says here that we are free. 
our fundamental identity is not as citizens of a particular country, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. But we're not to use that freedom as a cover-up for an evil or as an excuse to avoid things like taxes. In fact, he says the way you're to silence foolishness or evil or wickedness is by doing good, by putting yourself in subjection to even things that may be less than good. We receive the benefits of government, roads, libraries, commerce, some money and trade, all of that, and so we're to honor govern government. Reverence and fear God, love the brotherhood, but also honor the government even if it's rough. And it might be real rough. At the time that Peter's writing, by the way, the emperor here that he's talking about is Nero, the one who is famous for burning Christians. And so one of the ways, then, he says, to silence that evil is by honoring their God-given authority. Mm. Now, as soon as I say all of that, the question that pops up in my mind is this. Should we always then obey government? I mean, are we just supposed to shut our mouth and take whatever comes to us? Because there's a lot of really rough stuff. Is, is civil disobedience and pushback ever okay? And there are tons of examples in the scripture of times when people denied or disobeyed government, and rightly so. Remember the midwives under Pharaoh were told to kill all the babies the male babies of a certain age, and they didn't. They disobeyed their government. And Daniel, in, in Daniel 6, there's a command that people are only to ask uh, the king, only to pray to the king, and Darius does not. He continues to pray to God. He disobeyed his government. And then Peter, in Acts chapter 5, when he's told to stop teaching in the name of Jesus by the religious Council of authority, he says we must obey God rather than men. So here's our rule of thumb. And it's just a rule of thumb because this is complex. Usually, typically, we are to obey rulers, even in things that are very difficult, unless there is a direct command from them that violates God and his law. I'll say that again. We are usually, typically, to obey rulers unless there's a direct command from them that violates God and his law, because then to follow them would be to disobey and to dishonor God. And ultimately, we want to bring honor to God. Figuring out how to do this is not easy, and I can't tell you all the circumstances in one sermon, even if I knew what is wise and good and right in every circumstance. So we need the Lord's help in this and a lot of prayer. But it does at least guard us from two extreme errors. One, it will guard us from the dominance of patriotism. That we need to be careful not to embrace government too quickly because we know that only God is king. But then as soon as I say that, it guards us against the opposite error that, that we don't want the dominance of anarchy 
or the loss of government and be careful not to reject government too quickly because governing authorities are God's instrument. Neither extreme brings honor to God. Ultimately, we're the Lord's servants, and so we want to honor God in the way that we submit to our government. So we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. An easy way to think about this is if a parent gives a child a mixing spoon, you remember this when you have kids and you set the kid up on the counter while you're cooking just because you're trying to trying to get something done, for goodness sake, and so you give them a mixing spoon to take care of. Now, that mixing spoon is primarily for mixing, but that kid probably, if they're young enough, will just wave it around like a conductor or maybe tap on the, on the countertop with that spoon. They're not using that spoon necessarily in its particular way, but that mixing spoon then is in the hand of that child, but ultimately then belongs to the parent the two things are not necessarily at odds. Uh, one, the holding of the mixing spoon can fit inside of the other. The mixing spoon is that child's, but it is also the parent's. And that's the way we're to think about this government in relation to God. I think the key to this, if we really want to zoom in on what's going on, is in verse 16. So Jesus has just called for this coin and says, let me look at it. And his first response is one that's very interesting to me, and I think it holds uh, something important for us. And they brought him a coin, and Jesus said to them this. Here's his words. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness is it? Whose image is on this coin? Oh, Caesar's. Okay, it looks like Caesar, then it's his. Give it back to him. And I, this idea of the image or the likeness is very important in Scripture because we know that all the way back in creation, when God made the world, he made human beings different from the rest of the world in the sense that humans, mankind, male and female, are made in God's image. That when we look at a human, there should be a part of us that goes, ah, yes, this is God's, this belongs to God, in the same way that when you look at Eliza, her eyes and the way she makes an expression, you go, ah, yes, she must belong to Nathan, she must belong to Laura, she looks like them, she images them, but we know sin has marred that image, twisted that image, uh, distorted it, and so, so we end up with things like flattery, traps and hypocrisy and selfishness, uh, the power struggle of government and with our neighbors. It's the reason why Paul brings this up in Colossians for reaching the end here. Colossians chapter 3, he says this in verse 7, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Do you hear it there? He says, you've put off the old self and you're putting on the new self, which is being renewed in God's image. So when we look at a coin, we see the face of Caesar and go, ah, this belongs to Caesar. That when we look at us, we want to see in us something that makes us go, ah, yes, that looks in a way like God. So it belongs to God. So then the last question is, what does it actually look like to put on that new self, to put on that renewed image? Because if you're anything like me, you might want to, you might try to, but it is a struggle I get so tired of my sin sometimes, but I still do it. And there are times where we feel stuck. When we look at the coin, and Jesus asks, whose image and inscription of this? The image there is Tiberius. The inscription is Divius Filius Augustus, the son of a, of, of a god. When we look at Jesus... The image that we're seeing there is the real Son of God, the image of the invisible God. And the inscription, if, if Jesus were on a coin, the inscription that would be around Jesus, according to Colossians, is one who reconciles, one who makes peace by the blood of his cross. This is true of Jesus. I want to follow that. I want to look like that. I want to, I want to be the embodiment of, of one that, in, that is the fruit of the Spirit like that. When we look at a Christian then, because of the grace of God, the inscription that we see is this, sons of God with Jesus ones who have peace by the blood of his cross. That's really true for us. But it's not true for every person, which is the sad news. You'll notice at the end of this text in Mark, so Jesus says, whose likeness rendered to Caesar what Caesar's and to God's what's God's. And that's the end of it. But the ones who are watching the religious authorities who have really just pushed on him, at the very end it says this, and they marveled at him. Or another way you could say, and they were amazed by him. Basically, they thought Jesus was really impressive or smart or wise or clever or whatever else. They went, man, that guy is really something, but that is not enough. Because after that, they did not follow him. They were still stuck in the old self, and so their image was still twisted and distorted by sin. We want something different than that. We want to look at Jesus and marvel at him because he is marvelous. He is amazing when you go, wow, that was really smart and clever and holy and wise and good and full of truth. And out of that marveling to go, now I want to follow you. And so we ask for his help. We ask for his grace to repent in putting off the old self and putting on the new self, knowing that he gives that grace gladly and that we'll be renewed in the image of our creator. 
we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, yes. But we want to give to God what is God's. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we know that ultimately we cannot rely on our own obedience because we continue to be flawed and rebellious people. And so we rely upon you, upon your grace, upon your transforming power to really change us. We want to be faithful in our communities, to be, to a certain degree, obedient to our government, but ultimately to be obedient to you as the high king of heaven, worthy of all glory and honor and power. Help us, by your grace, to bear your image. We ask this now in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.